How's it going, comrades? You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths taught in school and on corporate media. My name is Daniel, filling in for JD today, and this is my co-host, Isha. Today we are speaking with Brandon Neely, who was a guard at Guantanamo Bay. Let's start the show. Shortly after World War II, many nation states conferred to create what we now know as the Geneva Conventions. Two of the most important Geneva Conventions are the Geneva Conventions on the Treatment of Prisoners of War and the Geneva Conventions on the Treatment of Civilians During the Time of War. Of course, since World War II, the U.S. government has taken great care to make sure we violate every single provision of the Geneva Conventions. But unfortunately, after 9-11, President Bush took that up a notch. The main purpose for prisoners of war is not to punish them, but to sequester them away from the battlefield until the end of wartime. But since the war is not defined against a nation state, and we don't have a limited battlefield, the Bush administration used those two loopholes to finagle themselves a status that allowed them to basically circumvent the Geneva Conventions. They invented a new legal doctrine called unlawful enemy combatants. And there is no such thing as an unlawful enemy combatant because in any war, you can't criminalize somebody for being born in the wrong country or doing the wrong or just fighting for the other side. And so, um, because of this legal doctrine, they established Guantanamo Bay, and they determined that many of the conventions didn't apply, including the ones on torture, the ones on medical experimentation of prisoners, the ones on humane treatment, and the list goes on and on. Today, we have a special guest, Brendan Neely, who's here to discuss exactly what is going on in Guantanamo Bay to many of these prisoners. We will also find out that many of the people in Guantanamo Bay were at the wrong place at the wrong time, including two people who were just buying weed in the border of Pakistan and Afghanistan. John Yu, the former Deputy Assistant U.S. Attorney General during the Bush administration, continually pushed the idea that human rights laws were helping terrorists, as can be heard here. AP1 stands for the Additional Protocol to the Geneva Conventions. So most people, when they hear the Geneva Conventions, they think of the World War II Geneva Conventions, which were from 1929, or the ones that have been governing for the most part since then, which were drafted right after World War II. Then in the 70s, in uh, in the midst of these wars of liberation and decolonization, and Vietnam was a very important effect, most of the countries of the world got together and drafted these new Geneva Conventions on top of the existing ones called the Additional Protocol. And one thing in writing this book, and one reason we reject the idea that any of these rules should guide how the United States thinks about these new weapons, is uh, they were very much the product of this kind of pro-third world, uh, pro-guerrilla, uh, pro-terrorist uh, movement uh, that was very much an effort to try to construct. We are now joined by Brandon Neely. So the first question is that I'm going to ask you is, um, 
So I, I actually read up on you in the UC Davis website and the whole testimony. So I'm just gonna ask you like, what did you know about the detainees when they, when they were going to be transferred to Guantanamo in January 2002? Um, I really didn't know much about them. Um, I only knew what everybody else knew that, you know, <laughs> What, 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 what they told us, the guys that had planned 9 to kill us if we turned our backs. And that's something that they told us before we went to Guantanamo and every day while we were... Wow. So, so they literally made it seem like your life was in danger? Like, oh, yeah, for sure. When, so, so, like, when you were guarding the prison, they, you thought, wow, that's mind-blowing. Yeah, I mean, every day before we... Went in the camp, we'd have a, like a roll call every day before we walked in. And basically where they would call you out and tell you before you went in there, they would, and that was always the last thing they would tell you is, yeah, don't forget, these are the guys that just killed 3,000 American, you know, citizens on, on American soil. And, uh, and these guys will kill you and your family if you turn your back. And, you know, that was something that was every day. Holy God. Okay, so I, I, that would justify, I mean, not justify, but explain a lot of the things that went on is if you were constantly thinking you were in a war zone and somebody was going to kill you, your adrenaline will be up and things like that. On that January, how many did they transfer to Guantanamo and did they give you any justifications? Like, why are we transferring them to Guantanamo instead of doing a hundred of other things that they could have done? Um, on the first day, I think, I can't remember if there was like, it was anywhere, maybe it was a 12 or 23. I can't remember the exact number anymore. But um, the first day when the detainees arrived, there was only a small group of us that were actually at the camp today. It was probably like 30, maybe 30 of us at the most. And um, yeah, we, we were just told that the first batch of detainees that were coming to Guantanamo that day from Afghanistan were actually the worst people they had. Like, you know, th this batch, th this first group of detainees were... Uh, like these were the worst of the worst of the worst, kind of like the worst guys they had in Afghanistan that we were getting that day. And, um, and you know, they just basically that's they just told us the reason the camp was opening. Well, we were told before that the camp uh, detention facility had never been ran before, and the Geneva Convention wouldn't be held in effect. And uh, they were very open policy or no standard operating procedure on how how to run the camp, and that um, we would literally be writing the book as we went along as we went along. Mm. Wow. Wow. Um, I, I think it would be really interesting to hear a little bit about the, that first group that arrived, maybe starting with the very first one you saw who got off the bus. Yeah, the first uh, – I was doing the escort the day, and the first guy to get off the detainee, um, he had one leg, a bus, a big yellow bus, and they opened the, the door, and one of the Marines threw his prosthetic leg out. And um, he just got off the bus hopping, and, you know, for obvious reasons, his nickname in the camp ended up being Stumpy. The guards called him that, and even detainees. Um, but yeah, you know, at, at the time, I, I, it sounds very naive, but you know, at the time I was 20 years old, 19, 20 years old, you, you don't know what a terrorist is. Like, you know, you've never come face to face with these terrorists. So I always say, you know, I didn't know what was going to get off the bus, like a little green Martian or what. You know, you're just like, wow, you know, what does a terrorist look like? And then when these guys started getting off the bus, you're like, man, this guys you know this, these guys are pretty small like if these are the worst of the worst we don't have much to worry about but um yeah but the second detainee to ever get off the bus was uh the australian uh, detainee david hicks a lot of people know who he is uh, i actually escorted him to that day from the bus to the uh to his cage and through the escorting procedure or to the uh in processing procedure that day so 
by the way, do you remember what the Marine told the guy with the one leg that day uh, when he right when he got off the bus? Um, I mean, always I remember them. They were screaming in another property of, of the United States, and um, I mean all kinds of stuff. I mean, it, it was something to the effect of that, but I, I can't quite remember. Yeah. Uh, so basically, yeah. According to your testimony, yeah. you, he said, um, "Now you're the property of the United States of America." Yeah, yeah. It was something to that effect. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, that's exactly what they said. Okay. Um, so where were the detainees housed? I remember you you talked about Camp Delta and Camp X-ray. Can you give people more of an idea of what their housing facility looked like and felt like? Yeah, Camp X-ray was an outside. I mean, that's where you see a lot of the iconic pictures from. It was an outside facility that they actually used to hold the Haitians back in the day, but they added onto it. Um, it actually looked like it, like a dog run. The cages weren't much bigger. Actually, you know, I think they were smaller than some of the like, you know, which you take your pet uh, for the weekend or for a week, or if you go on vacation. Like they were very small cages, and they were outside. There was like a little tin roof, but um, they were subject to, you know, to all the weather, rain or or whatever it was. But there was like no running water or anything like that in any of the cages. So they, the detainees would have two buckets, one that we put water in from a water hose and another one that they used the restroom in. And, um, uh, and, and, the, and, the, and in the cages, they would have uh, they had one mat, like a thin green PT mat we had. They would have a Quran and uh, like a very thin sheet as a blanket. But, uh, but after about four or five months, they went to Camp Delta, which was more of a permanent site where it's I guess more normal size cells, but uh, yeah, Camp X-ray was you know all outside on pea gravel. It was it was pretty bad. So they basically had to like be near their poop and like the smell. Yeah. Uh, uh, ew, okay, that was. Cr- yeah, um, and the, the the guards was to 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 dump the buckets. Are there people still in Camp X-ray, or has there been better facilities built? No, I mean they went to Camp Delta, and what's Camp Delta was built and stuff like but yeah camp x-ray hasn't been used since then um matter of fact the only reason camp x-ray is still standing because there's a court order from the fbi for you know any future court cases or where they can't be destroyed it's actually something that this administration is trying to do is destroy camp x-ray um but yeah it's currently nobody's held there at all i don't think how did showers work for the detainees okay yeah showers would be uh depending on you know random day that they would shower and basically, um, they would they'd be escorted to like an outside shower, you know, had to shower in front of everybody. And, you know, they would be escorted by men and women, uh, military officers, you know, MPs as well. So it was all outside. I mean, everything was outside at Camp X-Ray. And this went on for four months or five months, right? Yeah, four or five months. Yeah, for sure. Camp X-Ray is probably one of the worst as far as like the treatment on the blocks and stuff like that. I mean, not even going into the interrogations, which we really didn't deal with, uh, was probably the most probably the worst time at, at Guantanamo just for the just you know just just for the living conditions and the treatment that, that happened on the day-to-day basis on the blogs often like when we were reading through testimonials yeah. we he, read things about IRF teams and I'm sure most people don't know what they are or what they do so can you tell us about the IRF team yeah the internal reaction force team is, consists of five individuals um like uh, and, and they wear protective gear, like a, like a helmet, a, a chest protector. Some of them wear gloves and, like, knee pads or something like that. And the number one guy, in there, uh, he carries a shield. And basically what, they for, what they're for is to uh, – for, for cell, tra- cell 
removal of detainees or like they use them in the prisons to take prisoners out or you know that are rowdy um and basically what they would use before at guantanamo during my time there um especially early on like if a detainee refused to eat uh they would send the internal reaction force team and force them to eat um if you refuse medication they would you know send these five guys in and they would handcuff them to the fence and they'd force the medication down you know and included you know if they refused to insure um early on at guantanamo detainees even spoken if they if they spoke or if they even moved into indian style for a while before the red cross showed up you know the internal reaction force team was used basically it's just five big individuals their job was to to beat up the detainee oh my were you on one of those teams i never was on a uh i was never on the internal reaction force team um i trained with it but i never actually was on the team it was usually uh when i was there the five guys were usually you know They'd been in the army more, and because usually they didn't do anything, so usually the guys are higher ranking. They were just pretty much lazy. Oh wow! Um, there was a time when, like, it was the first day, and you kind of, like something happened with the detainee where he tried to grab you. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. It was the first. It was it was the first. Yeah, I've I've been out at all. I've talked about it. Uh, yeah, it was the first incident. It was a, it was. The first day we were taking the detainee, we took him through the end processing. We took him to Alpha Block, which to the cage, and put him in on his knees. Um, obviously, the guy didn't understand what we were saying. Uh, we placed him on his knees. Um, my escort partner went to go take the handcuffs off, and the interpreter, you know, was supposed to be telling the orders we were giving him not to move or whatever. And uh, he took, he tried to take the handcuffs off, and the guy jerked. And uh, you know, once again, we started screaming at the guy not to move, and the interpreter supposedly was telling him, you know, uh, not to move as well. But, you know, later we would find out that interpreters didn't even speak the correct dialect. Um, anyways, that happened a few more times. And the one time, once again, the escorting partner went in to take the handcuffs off. The detainee jerked towards me. And when he jerked towards me, I just slammed his face first into the ground. And as he kept trying to get up, I just kept slamming his head into the ground. Um, they called at the time, which they used the term code red. Um, which was like an emergency, you know, they got it from the movie, a uh, few good men, you know, the code red, you know, and, um, you know, the earth team, their internal reaction force came in and they pulled me off and they, they hogtied the, the, the guy. And, uh, he laid there, I mean, for the next few hours, because when we left the camp that, that evening, he was still that way. Um, when we came back to the camp the next day, I walked past alpha block and I could see on the side of the guy's face on his left, I think, I believe it was the left side, it was all scarred up and not scarred up, but like scabbed over. And you could see where his face had been slammed on the, on the thing. And a couple of days later, I was on that block and a detainee that spoke English told me that the reason that, you know, he, he flinched was, one, he didn't understand what we were saying. Like I said, the, come to find out the interpreter didn't speak the correct dialect. So the guy had no clue. But he, because he still had the goggles on, he thought he was going to be executed because um, he had seen family members in his country executed in the same manner, you know, put on their knees and, and, and shot in the back of the head. Wow. How old was this man? Um, he was older. Um, I mean, I always say he, he seemed somewhat older, uh, you know, like maybe in his 50s or something. But I don't know if um, – because I've looked at the records of guys that came that day and nobody was that old, but I don't know if it's just you know maybe from the beard and the fact they were all dirty. But he seemed a lot older than I mean, definitely a lot older than we were. I mean, he he looked to me like he was in his you know early to mid fifties. Did the detainees get any legal counsel at that point, or no? No, none at all. I mean, for the first few weeks, the internal Red Cross, the Red Cross wasn't even there. Like, um, 
I, I remember when the Red Cross showed up because we came in the camp that day and uh, the detainees were, you know, they were talking, they were moving around in, in the cages before they were there. Like, you know, they weren't allowed to move. They weren't allowed to talk. They did it. You know, obviously the internal reaction force team was, was sent in on them. Um, so, yeah, for the first two or three weeks, like the Red Cross, but yeah, there was no legal counsel. There was no, um, even the Red Cross was there, you know, there was, there was no mail. There was, there was none of that at that time. Were the Red Cross allowed to talk privately to the detainees without your presence? No, like we would escort them to the Red Cross. They just had like a, a camp X where they had a little, there was just a little military tent we would take them to. And we just walk them in, sit them in the chair, and we would sit right there. So there was like no privacy. Daniel, did you have a question? Um, you mentioned that he uh, he was left hogtied for several hours. Um, yeah. Was this, a, was this a common form of punishment at Guantanamo? Oh, yeah, especially in the early days. That that was what was done. If a detainee, you know, was determined to be out of compliance or, or you know, or needed to be punished, they would send the five-man internal reaction force team, and they put them in a hog-tie position, and they would sit there for hours until and, the and, camp and, commander of wow. the day decided to let them out, yeah. And what when you would see someone sitting like that for hours, I mean that that sounds like literal torture. Like how, how would they how would they react to being left that way? I mean, obviously, I mean, you know, just, just would they be screaming, begging, begging, oh, begging yeah. to be released? I, I, like, oh yeah, for sure. I, I, I can yeah. Call, you know, and and that, I mean, so, that's something that kind of like stays yeah. with you. So when you would see that happening, did you feel an urge to like release them or from the position or? I mean, I mean, early on, I mean, no, I, I'll be honest with you. Like, I, I really, you know, 9-11 happened. Like, I, yeah, I was just pissed off as everybody. I, vol- I volunteered, but I was actually told that we'd be going to Afghanistan with this other company. So I volunteered thinking I was going to go fight this great war. And then I was, you know, then I get told I'm going to Guantanamo to babysit a bunch of detainees. And, you know, so I thought it was. So I, I was pissed off. And, you know, you know, then we're told this. So at the time, like, it took me, it took me a while to realize uh, even if these guys are guilty, this is kind of messed up. Um, but yeah, early on, and I didn't really have—I really didn't think too much about it. Yeah, and what what were some other forms of of punishment besides the hog tying? Um, I mean, you—I mean, they they would strip the detainees of all their what they would consider like a you know, personal property or whatever, you know, like the like the blanket they had, and they would just sit out there all night, you know, uh, you know, take, you know, the Quran away or anything like that, you know, and there was times they would handcuff detainees to the cages, to, to the fence, and they would just sit like that for hours on end, but uh, most of the time it was just the five-man internal reaction force team would be sent in and you know, they, they would pretty much be beat. But do you know, like, whose idea the IRF was? Did it come from, like, a general or somebody higher or... Uh, the internal reaction force team, the Earth team, is uh, it's commonly used in, in a prison. And basically, basically what happened was, uh, like, we got there a couple days before Guantanamo opened, and there was some Marines that worked at a, I think they worked at Fort Leavenworth or wherever, a Marine brig, and they basically trained us for a few hours on how to run a prison, and, that, and that's where that comes from. But the uh, internal reaction force team would not be sent in without the okay of the, the camp commander for the day. It was always their final news. Okay, so they always were authorized by a higher... Officer. Yeah, yeah, like every day would change depending on who was working, like, you know, what company, or, I mean, what platoon was working, who, who was in charge of the camp that day. And if, like, Colonel Carrico, who was there, if, if he was there that day, he'd make the call or something like that. Whoever was the highest. At first they told you that these are really dangerous people, but yeah. did you later find out, like, how they got these people? 
Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, like, we would talk to the detainees, like, I would talk, we would talk to the detainees, and, you know, they would tell you a story about, you know, they were doing, you know, humanitarian aid, or visiting family, or, you know, try to swear they're in the wrong place at the wrong time, but, you know, I never really honestly thought that you know, the United States government would just lock up a bunch of people for no reason, there's no way they would do that, but, um, yeah, I mean, to, to really to find out the truth, how a lot of this happened, you guys got mixed up with this, it, it took years later, you know, um, Guantanamo was always a subject that I, I kept close to and always researched on it and read everything I could about it because it was kind of weird leaving, like, you know, just leaving these guys locked up. And um, then, you know, you start seeing the news stories and the truth starting to come out and seeing these guys get released. And then I started to realize, you know, a lot of stuff that they did tell us back then was true. And uh, that's when it really started to hit home. When did you start to feel like what was happening there was just wrong? Was it was there any point while you were still there or was it actually years later? No, I'm no. Um, I guess about halfway, a little bit over halfway through my deployment. We were still at Camp X-Ray. Uh, there was a detainee on, on Bravo Block named uh, Juma Dasari. He had supposedly called an MP uh, a bitch one day, which which he didn't do, come to find out. And basically, and, uh, and Juma um, had some mental issues. Like, I, I think he was a schizophrenic to be. I, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've, con- I've talked to the dude years later. But uh, um, anyways. I was walking by and I, well, I was in back in the back with their internal reaction force team and they get the call to go to Bravo block. And I was escorting through that day and they had nothing to do. So I decided to pretty much be nosy and go watch. So walk down to Bravo block and, and watch from the outside. And his cage was really close to the fence. So you could hear everything. And they were telling him to turn around and get on his knees. He kind of looked at him at first, like he didn't understand. Then eventually, you know, he complied, turned around, got on his knees. Well, they still they unlocked the, the lock off the cage door, and the number one guy who carries a shield tossed the shield to the side, and um, there was a couple feet in between him and Juma, and he kind of like got a running start and jumped and with his knee, went right in the back of Juma. Well, you know, the other four guys got on top of him, they just, you know, started hitting him and, and punching him and kicking him. They hogtied him, and then they started yelling for the female guard to come in there that supposedly called the name, and they started yelling at her, you know, hit him, hit him, hit him, and, you know, she hit him twice. And then um, when they stood up, you know, Juma was still on the on the concrete, unconscious, and you could see where his blood. I mean, there was just blood everywhere. His blood actually like soaked the concrete. Well, um, they had to call the medics sent to the hospital there at Guantanamo to the hospital. And uh, later that evening, those same guys and the guy that was in charge of the camp at the time was my platoon sergeant. Uh, we were all sitting there talking about it, and um, you know, he made a comment like, you know, I've never heard the general talk about my name and war crimes in the same sentence so many times. And they kind of laughed about it. And, um, yeah, that, that incident right there really was like, wow, man, this is like really messed up. Like that guy listened to everything they said to do. And then they, you know, that happened. And then there was a, me and a couple other guys that had, you know, we had talked about some stuff that was going on and we kind of just like made this little pack of, dude, let's just keep our nose clean. Let's stay out of this. Let's not get involved in anything. Let's just do our time and get the hell out of here. And, and that's what we try to do. So, so you didn't feel like you were in a position to like, file a complaint or i don't know like like nobody would care about your perspective oh, on this i mean not at all not during that <laughs> yeah idea. i mean in the military if you know you would have done that you would have caught hell i i mean i don't know what would have happened to you um so there's like no there's no there's, whistleblower there's, system no i mean I mean, it's easy to think, um, looking in the outside in, like, hey, you could do this, but man, when you're in and, and you're always told that these guys would never tell you to do anything wrong, that you know every order they give you is legal, no matter, you know, and, and you feed into the system, and um, 
it, it, it's just hard for people to do. And, um, and I, you know, the climate of, of, of the country at that time was so different than what it is now or, you know, later on as well. But, yeah, there, there was no system or anything set up that way. I mean, guys would publicly just talk about the stuff they did, you know, walking around, you know, the camp and or, you know. But, yeah, I don't. Yeah, there was just no way to, to blow the whistle. Did NCIS come in, in? I mean, for me, like if somebody is unconscious with blood all over, like if I were a police officer, I would just like want to investigate. Did the NCIS come and investigate even? No, no, nobody ever came in and said nothing. It was just like an incident that happened and the next day it was over with. Um, yeah, Juma got released and like after he was released, released uh, he, went, he went back to Saudi Arabia. He actually had, had, actually had to have surgery to fix something that happened to his admin, his stomach area uh, from that attack. Some of the detainees were force-fed pork. Is that true? I mean, when I was there, when it was much force-fed pork, but they would, like, you know, you get some of the guards that would, uh, like, switch the MREs out, give them, like, the pork MREs, and they would start eating it just, you know, as a, as they thought it was, like, a joke or something like that. Oh, wow. So so then your deployment ended, and and you came back to the States, and, and you were left with this experience to, to reflect on, right? And it, yeah. it's been a while now. So, yeah. like... Like reflecting now, lo- looking back on all that, like what what are your your feelings about this thing that you participated in? Oh yeah, I mean definitely looking back, I mean it, it's shameful, so wrong and, and, and illegal. I mean the, Guantanamo is going to be a black eye in the United States for forever. I mean um, I've always been a firm believer until you uh, come out and tell the truth of everything you you did and you know close down the camp, come out. And pretty much apologize for it. Nobody's going to, you know, you can't move on from it. And, and they're never going to do that. So Guantanamo will always be a black eye. And, and, you know, it's shameful to be a part of that, you know. Um, but um, that's why I think, you know, when I started years ago, speaking about Guantanamo was such an issue. I thought people deserved to know the truth, what was going on there. And I wanted, yeah. you know, some of the former detainees to realize, you know, and also, you know, when these guys were getting released, people didn't believe their stories of the treatment or, or, or anything like that. And, you know, maybe give some more validity to their stories when they got out. So, I mean, that was amazing. Yeah. Is there any, is there anything else that you've done besides, like, I know about 10 years ago, you gave that testimony. Is there any, any other thing that, that you, that you've done besides just kind of talking about it? Like to make I mean, amends or. I mean, I, I, I've spoke with former detainees, you know, I've met a few guys. I went to the UK and met a few guys. Um, matter of fact, the BBC did like a little documentary about it, but yeah, I still, to this day, still talk to a lot of former detainees and uh, wow. a lot of former, former guards over the years that have reached out to me personally and, uh, um, you know, put them in contact with people. And a lot of them guys have reached out to former detainees as well as guys they remember from there. And then now, you know, in the civilian world, a lot of them yeah. are friends and, um, wow. and, so, and, and, yeah. uh, there's like, uh, people always joke with me when I talk to like lawyers from Gitmo or whatever about the behind the scenes Guantanamo click we got going on, but it's, it's good. It's been something positive. And, uh, I think a lot of guys that I've talked to that have reached out to me, former guards or, you know, people that work there, they always thought they were there and uh, to see other people not feeling that, you know, they, they didn't feel alone. So now, you know, there's like you know, behind the scene group of guys that, that all you know talk and stuff. So, so you get the sense that a lot of the other guards actually felt the same way you did. And yeah, the I mean, same I, way you do. I've talked to guys that I still talk to today. Um, the guys that don't, def, I mean, you know, like my stance of closing Guantanamo, they do agree with the treatment that was there was wrong, what we did was wrong. 
But a lot of guys that, you know, I served with, you know, a handful of guys that I've spoke to that were like, yeah, you know, man, I, I thought the same thing when we were there. I just didn't want to say anything. Um, I'm glad you did. You know, and I, I've spoken to people for all different years, the guys I don't even know that just reached out, you know, different branches of the military, you know, to recently from years, you know, a few years ago that were there that just, you know, tell you stories about what's going on. And, um, and I, I've said many times that one of the saddest stories that will never be told from the issue of Guantanamo is, is what it's done not only to the detainees, but what it's done to the, the people, that the men and women that have worked there, um, because it, it's affected a lot of them in a negative way as, as well. Um, because when you leave there, they make you sign a non-disclosure agreement, and a lot of people are afraid to come out and speak because of this, because you know they'll threaten you or whatever. And uh, so a lot of guys oh. never talk about that. But I, I will all, but I, I will always stories that'll never be told that should be huh. told. You so are you violating the non-disclosure agreement by talking about it? Oh yeah, one hundred percent. Thank violated. you. I knew when, we appreciate when, it. I, did Did they come I, after I you when you did it? Like when you made that I, testimony? I, they well, did yeah, they really. Tried, yeah, but I knew them. I, tr- I tried to actually do it the right way and go to Congress and everything first, but they didn't want to hear it. And um, so when I decided to do testimonial, I had spoke to lawyers and, you know, they were like, this may happen. And I understood that going into it. But, um, I mean, nothing seriously ever happened. I mean, there was a lot of empty threats of, you know, charging with treason, charging with, you know, uh, leaking classified information, all kinds of stuff. And my whole thing was... And, and my whole uh, fight, or what I would tell the lawyers was like, fine, tell them to go ahead and do it. Like, we'll just put this whole system on trial. And um, uh-huh. it was just a bunch of empty threats and um, stuff like that. But, yeah, nothing ever came out of it. And, uh, you know, I've asked a copy of the non-disclosure agreement that I signed at the time. And, you know, they still never released it to me or, or anything like that. And so, it's, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not worried about it. Not um, now. I, I have a question. Um, this is kind of going back. Were there any juvenile detainees, and were they put in the same treatment as the adults? Uh, when I was there, I, I think there was one or two, but I never really saw them. But they kept them at, a, like, the Navy brig that was there, and they would send guys down there on a uh, – took, like, two guys to watch them. But, uh, but yeah, I, I never went over there. I think when I was there, it was, like, maybe one or two, but that was it. Okay, well, at least they had that decency. Um yeah. Uh, but, okay, by the way, could you elaborate about your trip to England? Um, you spoke, you when you visited, you visited two detainees, Ruhal Ahmed and another person? Yeah, Shafiq, uh, Razul, yeah. Um, yeah, they, they both were, they got to Camp Exeter early on. And I used to speak to Ruhal and Shafiq um, quite often on the different blocks. And uh, funny story, like Shafiq used to pretend he didn't speak English. And Ruhal was on a different block. was like, man, that's my friend. He speaks English. So I went over there one day when I was working. I was like, man, I know you speak English. Ruhal told me. Then he started speaking to me. Uh, so he acted like he speak English. But I used to speak to Ruhal quite a bit because we were about the same age. Uh, I think he was like a year older than me. But, I mean, we had a lot in common, like, you know, music. Uh, we talked about going out to the clubs and, and stuff, you know, just normal stuff you do at 20 years old. And, um, yeah, I, I remember thinking, like, man, this guy is no different than me. Like, yeah. I mean, how the hell did he end up in this place? But yeah, it, it, it was good. You know, those guys out of the military and they're out of at a Guantanamo now. And, you know, we've all moved on with our lives. But yeah, it, it was good to see those guys come face to face and kind of like you know tell them I'm sorry for my part and and, and whatnot. How did Druhel get there? Well, well, they were gonna go to one of their friends' weddings in Pakistan, but they decided to go to the Afghanistan border to go buy some buy some weed and take it back and sell it to the UK. 
um, which was a funny story because they had never, I don't think they'd ever told anything that that part publicly until we did the documentary, but they remember, he remembered telling me that story at Camp X-Ray. He was like, well, I bet I went ahead and told it because I figured you were going to say it. So go ahead and tell that part. So, um, yeah, they went to go buy hash and take it back into the UK. So they got caught up at the. What was it like when you when you met them for the first time? Like, I, I imagine you expressed some apology or remorse, and like, how did they take it? How how, how was that for them? Um, it, it was pretty nerve wracking. None of that was like that was the first time on camera that we'd actually came face to face. Like, um, and we actually had spoke a few times on Facebook. That's how we got back in contact was through Facebook. Um, but yeah, nobody knew how anybody was going to react. Um, you know, I didn't know, you know, when we spoke, they were going to be upset with me. Um, you know, you know, nobody knew what was going to happen, but yeah, you know, we just sat down. I mean, obviously they, they knew a lot of what I had said, you know, I apologize for me. And, you know, like I told them, I couldn't apologize for everybody, for the country. I could apologize for what I took part in. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing because a lot of these former detainees include them. They're so forgiving. It's like these guys have went through hell and, you know, a lot of these guys have been here for years. And they get out, and, and they're so forgiving. Like they don't blame you. And these are the guys that are telling me to like to move on with my life, forget about it. I'm thinking, man, if, if I, I don't know how the hell y'all move on. Like I, it's hard for me to forget about it. How, how do you move on? But um, yeah, like it was weird. Like we left there, and when I left the UK that day, still to this, you know, I always said I left there with two more friends, and you know, here we are. You know, seven years later from that documentary, eight years later, and we we still talk. Wow. Um. Were there ever any JAG officers or DOJ attorneys or anyone giving you guidelines on how to behave, or was it just a free-for-all? Oh, no. Nah. It was just a free-for-all at Guantanamo. Nobody knew, nobody, nobody knew anything. If something didn't work on a Monday, they would just change it on Tuesday. If that didn't work, they would just change it. Yeah, we... We, we had no uh, um and then how did you feel when george w bush came in and made that speech that said the united states doesn't torture oh yeah i mean yeah yeah it, i mean when anybody said it, it really upsets me because i know it's not true because i took part in and i witnessed it and saw it firsthand so uh yeah it's very you know, it, it it upsets me it upsets me a lot um but yeah it, i i just i just couldn't can't believe people still still believe that or or think it's okay um like one of the like i, I can remember watching dick cheney on tv one time back before i had spoken out talking about guantanamo and he mentioned february of 2002 and he he made a comment about how how great of a place it was at that time i'm like dude i was there like i know it wasn't i was so mad i wanted to throw the you TV want out answers the window and i think i'm entitled you like, I want answers i want the truth you can't handle the truth me. I was really to the limit in that. Son, we live in a world that has walls. Those walls have to like, you know be what? guarded by men with guns. Screw Who's going to do it? I'm, you, I'm, I'm, I'm you, Lieutenant out. Weinberg. I have a greater responsibility than you can possibly fathom. You weep for Santiago and you curse the Marines. You have that luxury. You have the luxury of not knowing what I know. That Santiago's death, while tragic, probably saved lives. And my existence, while grotesque and incomprehensible to you, saves lives. You don't want the truth because deep down in places you don't talk about at parties. You want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. We use words like honor, code, loyalty. We use these words as the backbone of a life spent defending something. You use them as a punchline. 
I have neither the time nor the inclination to explain myself to a man who rises and sleeps under the blanket of the very freedom that I provide and then questions the manner in which I provide it. I would rather you just said thank you and went on your way. Otherwise, I suggest you pick up a weapon and stand a post. Either way, I don't give a damn what you think you are entitled to. Did you order the code red? I did the job. Did you order the code red? You're goddamn right I did! detainees are being treated now under the Trump administration I know you don't um, know but yes <laughs> yeah I mean I, I would say like the day-to-day -day treatment is probably a lot better than it was in even though the last more eyes on it but these guys have still been in their 16 17 years with with no due process um so it's still I mean these guys are locked up 23 hours of the day so it's still torture I mean locking innocent people up and you still got a lot of people that are cleared for release um and yeah, I mean, I think maybe the day-to-day -day care is better, uh, but yeah, I mean, without the due process, without the legal proceedings, it, it, it's still, I mean, it's, it's still daily. Also, um, are you familiar with the case of the Uyghurs? Uh, not real. Familiar. Okay, um, it's okay then. Um, let's see. Um, and um, I guess the, the, there were formal interrogations um, that were also kind of torturous. Like, were you ever part of those? Now, my unit didn't really deal with interrogations. We dealt with more the day-to-day, -day, like, you know, detainee care on the block and stuff like that. They brought in an escort of detainees to the, uh, to the interrogation and stuff like that. And when the detainees would come back, when the detainees would come back from interrogation, we didn't ask them, you know, what happened or anything like that. And they didn't, and, and they didn't tell us what was going on either. You know, th there was another thing I, I remember that came out in the news about, about the sexual abuse. Did you, did you, see much of that or or take part in any of it uh, i mean as far as that the only thing i can really recall is like um when the detainees would come in they would be given a cavity search by a, a you know suppose like a navy corpsman or a navy doctor and you know they give them a rector exam and they wouldn't use they wouldn't use any kind of lube or anything like that they would just pretty much you know go out of their way to cause as much pain as they could <laughs> Yeah, and, and you know, there was another incident you spoke about with uh, someone who had an injured arm and they were getting some, some kind of rehabilitation and sometimes, yeah. like, th there was an incident, I think, where, where a doctor seemed to go out of their way to, to yeah, inflict pain. There. Yeah, the, the, from what, I mean, uh, from what we were told was the guy had been, uh, I guess, clipped by a round or something like that, and his, and his, and his arm had been in a sling so long that the bicep basic grew to his forearm and it needed to be stretched out so what so we would take him you know every day for what you know basically rehab so they could stretch his hand arm out and they had a, a medic or a corpsman at the time and uh he, he looked at us it was like you want to see him scream we're like what? i can remember i can remember saying what and he just took his arm and now, I've been taking these guys for, for, you know, for the last few days, and they would, you know, take it just inch down one at a time, and they would never go all the way down, but they, every day they try to go a little further. And he, he just stretched all the way out, and the guy just, you know, obviously was in a lot of pain and screaming, and then, um, you know, he released it, and he was like, all right, I'm done, and, and that, was, that was it. That was the entire physical therapy, and this guy was a medic? Yeah, 
for yeah for that for that instant right there yeah wow um what about the food like did they have decent food um i mean yeah i, I mean they got they used had a hot meal for uh for breakfast a hot meal for dinner so i mean it wasn't you know all that bad as far as, I mean, the food was bad. It was military food, but I mean, it wasn't like strictly just MREs. What's an MRE? A meal ready to eat is basically like a like a military meal, portable meal we carry. Okay. Um. And um, did they ever get to like communicate with their family, or, or did their family even know where they were in the beginning? Like, were they just disappeared? Uh, I mean. Yeah, because a lot of those guys at that time didn't even know where they were at because they didn't even want us to tell them. I mean, it took them a while. I think Red Cross are the ones that ended up telling them where they were at. Um, yeah, but when I was there, I don't, yeah, the mail and stuff like that or the contact with their families was not. Wow. Um, did any other human rights organizations visit besides the Red Cross? Um, not to my knowledge. When I was How do you think um, this affected you, like, for the few, like, how, how did your character change or, like, what do you think being going through these incidents ha- did to you? I guess. Um, uh, I mean, I mean, I, I think it's had an effect. I mean, like I think um, going to Guantanamo than Iraq for a year, or whatever. I think it really changed my outlook on uh, just people in general. Like, I wouldn't say I was like closed-minded, but it really let me, you know. It, I mean, I pretty much seen the worst of what was the offer out there, and it, 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 but it showed me too that. No matter nobody's background or religion or anything like that, like you know, we're we're all pretty much equal, and it really put me on the to really cherish like the human rights and stuff like that. Um, and I I know it sounds it sounds bad, but it, I mean, it obviously, it wasn't a positive experience, but I think it changed me in a positive way. As it, it, you know, it gave me it opened my eyes to a lot of stuff that was happening in the world, and and it respected more people that way that I may have never gotten if I hadn't been through those incidents in my life at all. Okay. Um. Sorry, yeah, this is kind of, kind of a little hard for us, so that's why we're kind of flabbergasted. But um, did you, um, okay, so I, I know you weren't there, but Joseph Hickman mentioned that there was like a secret CIA facility over in the camp. Were you familiar with that at all? Camp No? No, you're talking about Camp camp no nah I don't know if that camp was I never heard nothing about it then okay um what other forms of torture did they do like they try to keep them awake for hours right yeah I mean the the guys are nights I only work nights a few times but basically they just want you to walk around and uh, you know every so often wake them up and make sure they're still there I mean I guess at the time you know looking you know at the time, you just thought you were just doing what you're told, but you know, really looking back from what you were doing, you basically were depriving them of their sleep all night. And and how on earth would they leave the island? How would they what? It seems like it's an unrealistic expectation for them to a leave their cage and b get out oh, of yeah, the island. Sure. Yeah, there's the, there's no way because I mean, unless you're on a boat or a plane, you're not. Going- um, were there any that weren't actually, I mean, I know there were many, but were there any, like, let's say, like, who were, like, dissidents from other countries that were, like, like, renditioned over there? Like, somebody that the uh, Saudi government didn't like or somebody that the Bahraini government? Uh, not that I know of. I mean, we didn't really didn't, we didn't know, like, where a lot of these guys come from unless they told us. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, we, we weren't, like, 
we weren't told that kind of information if it happened at all when I was there. Um, let's see. Do you have any other questions, Danny? Um, well, there was one other thing I, I was curious about. Um, like, I'm sure there was a variety of the type of person who arrived there, but um, I was wondering about the issue of a mental illness. I'm sure some of these people developed them while they were there or arrived with them. And I was just curious, like, how, how that would be dealt with. Um, yeah, early on, like, they had one guy that was, like, a schizophrenic, and um, who literally, he was the first guy that ever left Guantanamo. I mean, he literally was the poster boy for the wrong place, wrong time. He... <laughs> He, he, I mean, come to find out, this guy, he, he was like in the fall, he was in the field one day with his dad, uh, hurdling some sheep, and, and they basically just, they basically just took him. And he was, you know, nothing to do with anything. Um, basically, they didn't do anything. Like, they didn't have any medication for this guy or anybody there when I was there. They, they used to tell us that he was, you know, he was, he was, uh, pretending to do all this and stuff like that. Yeah, there was like really no kind of care or anything there when I was there at all. It's, I mean, I think, I think over the years, it's, probably gotten better but yeah during that time there was nothing nothing at all they thought everybody was just faking everything if anything was wrong did anyone die because of that like because they thought they were faking no i mean not during not when i was there were there any deaths of prisoners while you were there nope okay um and oh also um do you know much about john Yu? yeah he's the guy that wrote the torture memos okay so were you guys um like, was he also giving instructions to your superiors about, um, I mean, he really thinks it's okay for, honestly, like, that we played it on our show last week, where John Yu admits that he thinks it's okay for our president to crush a five-year-old's testicles if it, in the interest of national security. Like, were you, were, was, were your superiors getting orders from him at all, or, like, conduct on what? No. Okay. Oh, I have, yeah, no clue at all. Um, and how did they justify that these weren't prisoners of war? Um, I mean, they, they, the only thing we, they ever told us at, our, at my level was that, you know, the Geneva Convention just wouldn't be held in effect. And that, um, you know, we weren't told to call them prisoners of war, that detainees. So, I mean, we never were really was given a justification at all. We were just, just told that and just that was it. So you were actually told that the Geneva Conventions doesn't apply. Yeah, we were told that. Okay. Oh my God. Like, wow, that is shocking. Um, because actually, according to the Geneva, I'm sorry, I'm gonna so do this, but according to Geneva Conventions, like every single uh, military person needs to know it and needs to know that it's always applied. But that is yeah. shocking that they just did do any education like that. I mean, not shocking. I understand why they didn't. Um. But why do you think they were so, like, the Bush administration wanted such wanton cruelty? Mm, I mean, I don't know. I think at that time that, I mean, that time the American people and, and it was all about, you know, proving a point that, you know, you can't attack us without getting you. And I think they just threw the rule book out the window. I mean, we had a perfect opportunity after 9-11 when we started capturing these guys to show that, um, you know, the United States, you know, justice system worked and was the greatest in the world, but we dropped the ball instead of putting these guys through the judicial system, finding them guilty or innocent, and then giving them a crime or giving them their punishment, and it'd be done with, you know, here here we are 17 years later, and still nothing has been done. Um, and, you know, we dropped the ball, man. They're going to have to live with that. Yeah. Those guys that are Guantanamo now, I mean, I, I honestly believe that they'll never be tried. They'll never be tried in a commission. 
the and, and because they're not gonna be able to do it because everything all the information they've gotten they've used torture to get so they dropped the ball you know the whole guantano phenomenon doesn't make sense um even even besides the torture and the violation of the law it turns out that like the vast majority of people who end up there never even did anything so yeah. like I, i'm wondering if you have any thoughts about why the government would even want to go there rather than a much easier path of what you described of putting these people into the legal system which would have you know protected their rights more like like what what was in it for for the military and the government i i honestly think that they were just moving way too fast. They were just moving too fast, and, and then honestly didn't give no thought. And before they realized it was too late, I mean, before they realized what was going on, it was just way too late. Um, I, I think they wanted just to prove a point that you know you couldn't attack us without us getting you, and they didn't care the means or anything that they used. Um, but you know, the people that made the decisions to go to Guantanamo and to torture are not the ones that had to to do it. They're not the ones that had to witness it. You know, they're not the ones that have to live with what they did, or they're not the ones that have to live with having that done to them you know they sit in their million dollar mansions like nothing happened it's just part of the past but for so many yeah. people that served at guantanamo or held at guantanamo who, who did the torturing or, or you know who spent you know, days interrogating these guys they're, they're gonna live with that forever um what, what do you think of how did you feel when obama did the uh thing where he said we i know we tortured some people but we're not gonna try these people like the higher-ups how did you feel Yeah, I've always been accountable. I mean, if you're not going to hold people accountable for that, you know, even in the past, people got to, when we're still holding Nazis accountable, I mean, how can we not hold these guys accountable? Um, because by not holding people accountable, you're basically saying it was okay to do it, whether you say it's wrong or not. I mean, it, it, when, he, when, he, when Obama took office, I was hoping for a Truth and reconcili Reconciliation Commission, you know, maybe people be held accountable. But, you know, once again, that didn't happen as well. And I was, you know, really disappointed. And then you see people like Gina Haspel, who was, you know, one of the biggest, you know, people that tortured people. And now here she is running the CIA. And that's just a, you know, that's just a, another way, you know, for the government to say, you know, it, it was okay to torture. And, you know, it, it hasn't helped around the world and, and it'll continue not to help. It's just pretty sad that nobody's held, been held accountable. Yeah, um, I agree. Um, do you think it, it, the fact that no one's been held accountable, like, has that made say the executive branch more powerful or like just kind of like hurt us in a democratic sort of way yeah it hurts us because um now you can have people like trump saying you know these these acts weren't torture they were just enhanced interrogation techniques what they did wasn't wrong because nobody's been held accountable because they'll always come back with well nobody was held accountable um yeah it hurts our standing around the world i mean look you still have groups like isis that they put their The, the people they captured in orange jumpsuits. Why do they do that? Because we did it at Guantanamo. I mean, oh. we, we Guantanamo has caused their health. Wow. I didn't know that about and, and the and, and the whole idea of, Guant I, as I recall, I think, the reason why these people weren't put into the um, judicial system is because they were considered, like, too dangerous? Yeah, I, I think they try to use that term. I mean, they I mean, they told us everything. You know, they told us one guy was trying to fight through the hydraulic lines on the C-130. Well, then when you get these guys, you know, they were shackled up. And you're like, man, how could he have done that? So I, I think they, they they used the fear on the American people of, you know, these are the world's most dangerous people. You know, at that time after 9-11, they could have done anything. And people would have been okay with it because, you know, the, the fear level was so high and people were so upset. 
I think they took advantage of it. Um, <laughs> one quick question. Uh, do you think the news media was responsible at all for amping up the fear, or was it all the administration's fault? I mean, it, I mean, I think, I think, yeah, the media always plays a part, and I mean, um, I mean, the media was never too far from us at Guantanamo when all this was going on. I mean, there was cameras there the first day everywhere. Um, so you can't tell me there's not pictures or, or videos of stuff that happened there or the incident with me the first day. I mean, why didn't that stuff get reported? I mean, I mean, why was why was only stuff about how you know how how horrible everybody was there? Um, yeah, the media plays a, a big factor in that, and it, I mean, the media is always going to go where what sells. And at that time, being patriotic and and not caring how people were treated is what what sold papers. Which media? Wow, uh, that's actually really shocking. Like, so which? Can you do you remember which media sources were there and? Were they I mean, like, like? I don't remember exactly. I mean, I knew everybody was there. You know, you had CNN. I mean, there was reporters, and you had camera crews sitting out actually on the Cuban side on top, uh, on the Cuban side on top of the hill, trying to take pictures inside the camp. And I mean, they would get interviews from guards. Like before we went in, they would you know maybe take one or two people out, and they would do interviews with them. So they were always there, like around the camp or wow. interviewing people or something like that. So if they wanted to investigate, they could have investigated. But they chose not to. Yeah, I feel like if they really, I mean, there's there's no way these people didn't hear what was going on inside the camp. The camp was open. It was outside. It, it wasn't like, you know, in, in the closed off area. And those guys were usually, you know, right outside the right outside the, 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 the fence from the from the camp, you know, especially when we would go in during the day. You know, like the general or somebody was there, the media was always not far behind. Thank you for listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths taught in school and on corporate media. For our patrons, in the next episode, Colleen reveals all the intelligence received before 9-11. We will learn about a member of the 9-11 Commission appointed by Bush who had a very famous client, a client by the name of Bin Laden. To become a patron, go to www.patreon.com slash historic underscore Lee.